Well, good morning. Good to see you. Woo, we got a lot of blessing coming this morning. A lot of great stuff. A couple quick announcements before we get going. The first one is a reminder again that if you have little ones, we're talking about... Uh, that the babies all the way up through preschool, if you have uh, those little ones, be considering whether or not you can adjust with your family schedule to come on Saturday nights because we have so many little ones. I gave a little bit of an announcement about that last weekend, but uh, we don't want any little ones to be turned away at a door. We don't want any of them not being able to go into their classrooms, so we're trying to rebalance a lot of different things. So if we could just maybe do an adjustment there. The second thing is the baptism this evening, five o'clock, that there's nothing cooler for anyone that is getting baptized than rising up out of that water and looking around and seeing their church family together. This is one of those events where it makes church feel smaller. We'll be out in the courtyard. They will remove the fencing. Did you see the fencing around the pool? Man, that just looks like you trap people that get, you know what I mean? Like you get baptized, maybe you'll get out, maybe you won't, that kind of thing. <laughs> Depends on your sin level, that kind of stuff. Uh, the fencing will be removed. It's not staying up during the baptism. Uh, but we are going to be moving that, uh, that back and just having a potluck. So bringing in a dish to share, but really this is where you start making it feel like family, where it feels like home, where you later on afterwards, you'll say, oh, I saw you at the baptism or I saw you get baptized and it makes church get reduced down and it feels much more personal. So uh, I'm going to be wandering around out there and a lot of our pastors are. We would love to meet and greet you, meet your family members, stuff like that. So please come and join us tonight at five o'clock. All right, that is it for announcements. Let's go ahead and take out our Bibles and the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We are in part two of our series I entitled The Purpose Reclamation Project. The Purpose Reclamation Project. And what it is is really trying to follow how God got Israel back in alignment with his will, back into the land, and then asking the question, what is he trying to do with us? How is he trying to get us in alignment with his will? Is there a way that we've been hijacked, distracted? Is there something new and fresh? He wants to get our attention where he's going to say, listen, out of everything else going on in your life, I need you where I need you. Are we listening to the voice of God? That's how we make this very, very personal. But I think that there's also an awful lot of exciting things that God is going to share with you today. Our prayer is that each and every person in this entire campus is individually ministered to by the Lord today. And so I want to begin with a question. Do we really want God's will for our lives? Do we really want God's will for our lives? I think theoretically we do. I think practically we struggle, right? A lot of our prayers sound a lot more like God, not thy will, but my will be done. Yeah. A little bit of a backwards thing. I think that we think we know better and that, well, he's been gone for a while. And so in the meantime, we've been watching our lives and I think we know what we really need. So Lord, I'm going to give you a list, right? I'm going to give you a list of things that I need to really get my will done. Uh, there are some things that are beyond my control, God. So I need you to kick down a little help for me and then we'll get those things nailed down. That would be great. That is not right. 
You actually want God's will for your life. Why? Bottom line, it's better. It's better. And you go, well, is it really? Yeah, no, it is. And here's why. As it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit. You cannot imagine what God has for you. You go, well, hold on. Now I'm one of those guys, right? I'm one of the, I got a big imagination. You got to remember, I collect comic books. I got a huge imagination of stuff that's not legit at all, (laughs) right? Stuff that doesn't even exist. I can imagine pretty much anything and be pretty wild. So if anybody says, oh man, it was beyond my imagination. I'm like, you weak little human. You and your low-level imagination. My imagination is grand, right? Okay, well, here's the thing. God's imagination is incredible, and he's tracking stuff in your life that you don't have on your radar at all. I'll give you an example. Let's say that your imagination goes something like this. God, I, I dream of one day being in the sweet spot of my life where where I'm doing a, a job that feels like I'm using all my gifts and my capacities and the talents that you've given me, that, Lord, I can dream of a place where it intersects with my, with my dream of ministering. I can minister through my job. I feel like that there is a healthy compensation. I feel like my, my future is settled. Uh, I don't have to worry too much about retirement. My children are walking with you, God. And I know that there is a richness there and that we are in good health and we can bond as a family, right? Does that sound pretty good? Yeah, you're like, dang, that's better than mine. All right. Okay. So let's say that's your imagination. Sounds great. Here's the way that God looks at things. He'll go, well, that's a great start. Here's what I had in mind for you. On Wednesday... You're going to interact with somebody in a divine appointment. You're going to go to Jiffy Lube. And at Jiffy Lube, they're going to take a super long time. It's not as Jiffy as you think. (laughs) You're going to meet a guy named Rick. While you're talking to Rick in the waiting room, Rick is going to look a little bit upset. You're going to say, hey, you okay? And he's going to say, no, actually, I just lost my daughter in a car crash. You're going to say, oh, goodness, I can't even imagine the heartache you're going through. Can I pray for you? And you're going to pray for him. And his healing is going to begin. And then what's going to happen is that Rick is going to go back and he's going to minister to his family. And his family is going to get saved. You're never going to know this. And then his other daughter, Amanda, is going to go out And she's going to fall in love with me, Jesus Christ. And in her college, she's going to launch a ministry amongst some sorority friends. And they're going to launch the next wave of women's ministry in America. Was that on your radar? Nope. You want God's will for your life. Because you're not even able to grasp what he's got going on. Fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. God's purpose for us is more noble than our own. God's purpose for us is more noble than our own. I know you have high goals. He has higher. 
I know that what you and me think is important is not ultimately sometimes important in the grand scheme of things. He is working on that which is truly important. We want God's will for our lives. What am I, why am I talking about this? Because where we're at in the story is that the Jewish people so lost their way that God had to wipe them out of their land in discipline. They, the unthinkable, the impossible happened. They were moved out of their promised land, taken into captivity for 70 years, never thinking that they're going to come back. And now they've been given a second chance to realign with the purposes of God. But most of those people don't know anything but captivity. It's 70 years. Now there may be some, you got to remember life, life uh, spans were much shorter back then. There may be some that, that, that remember what it was like to be carried away and they're returning. And there might be some of those, but the majority who can make the incredible journey are probably younger than 70. That means they know nothing but captivity. Their mind has only been in Babylon. They've only known not being in their own land. They've only heard stories. Their mindset is very closed. And God says, kids, I'm taking you on a journey and we're going to change the world. Man, incredible. God's mindset is so much bigger for them. Today's message is entitled, He Knows Us by Name. I believe that one of the greatest travesties in the world today is people who define themselves as Christians but do not have a personal relationship with God because they do not believe that God is personal. Here's what I need to burn into your mind and hopefully saturate you with today. We serve a personal God. We serve a personal God. That it, there's not this idea that, man, it's an invisible God. He's super far away. I mean, he, he kind of got this thing rolling. He disappeared. He's up in heaven. We're down here. That's not reality. Why? Because when Jesus showed up, when he described the kingdom of God, he said, it's right here. God is infinitely close. You don't believe me? Well, let me give you some biblical evidence here. You could just write either these uh, notations down or just listen. Psalm 139, 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That's pretty personal. That God's hands knitted you together. He didn't create a system where a dude hooks up with a girl and then that kind of goes through a process and ta-da, he throws a soul in there from a distance, right? God hand knits kids. He hand knitted you. Personal interaction as he weaves you together as you are being born. Incredible that God works in utero. I know that you probably go, well, God's been working most of my life. Uh, hold up. He's been working more in your life than you ever imagined. Because take a listen to this next verse. God responds to Jeremiah and says this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
before his cells began to divide and then he began to grow into a little critter and then he got flippers and then as he kept going, right, he got little limbs. Before all that, God said, prophet. And breathe him into existence. Incredible. This is the God we serve. Intimately involved. Knows you better than your parents know you. Know you better than you know you. How do we know that? Matthew 10.30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. What a dumb stat. <laughs> right? Really? Do we need to know like what's falling out in the shower and what's kind of going, uh, growing back, right? Do we need to know that? Does it have to be over a certain length before it counts? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Makes it easier to count in the military with those short haircuts. You understand what I'm saying? What I'm telling you is that God goes, yep, lost one, gain one, lost one, gain one, lost one, gain one. He's tracking on all that. Why would he even care? Because he does. He knows stuff about you you don't know. Because he's more interested in you than you are interested in you. I need you to know we serve a personal God. Let's keep moving forward. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. The only reason you came up with a brilliant idea is he gave it to you. This is why I believe that in prayer, there's a couple things I want to highlight out to you. When you go into your prayer closet, you know, not like everybody has a war room, right? I get that. I'm just saying like that symbolically, wherever you go to pray, where it's personal between you and God, right? We call that a prayer closet. All right. When you go in your prayer closet... The idea is that you're connecting with God and sometimes it seems like we're trying to bring him up to speed. Have you noticed that? Lord, it's Lance. Lance Hahn. I live in Folsom. <laughs> well, thank you, son. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Son of Karen and Bruce Hahn. Okay, I get it, right? Like, do you really need to describe yourself to me? I got you, buddy. And then we start talking about what's going on in our situation. Lord, it's bad. <laughs> is it now? It is. They don't like me. Who doesn't like you? All the children. All the, ch the children don't like you? And he's, I mean, it's just so funny, us trying to tell God what's up. The whole time he's like, I know what's up. I just want you to pour out your heart. I love hearing you, but please don't think that if you don't let me know that I don't know. I do want to hear you talk. I just don't want you to think that you're in charge of this conversation. Because here's the other thing. Now I'm going to be talking uh, about the supernatural a little later on this year. I'm going to be doing a training on supernatural. And so I don't want to get into the big debate of what's the difference between a prayer language and tongues and corporate tongues and how does this work, right? We'll get into all that later on. But one thing I do want to say is that have you ever seen new parents with babies, and babies just go off and talk and they have no words to say. Like they're like, blah, 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 blah. And they look very focused. Like they know what they're talking about. Nobody else in the world knows what they're talking about except for mom and dad. Usually mom. 
<laughs> right? Let's be honest. Dad doesn't have a clue. All right. The little baby, and it's funny because mom will come up and the baby's going off and they'll go, oh, do you want your sippy cup? And the baby's like, yeah, that's what I've been talking about for the last five minutes, right? Well, how does she know that? She knows her child. I need you to know that when you go into your prayer room, you don't need to know all the right words. You don't need to say all things in the right order. You don't need to go through all the hoops. I just want you to just be real in front of your dad. And sometimes if you just need to cry, he knows how to interpret crying, right? He knows what you need. He gets it. Why? He's so intimately connected. Deuteronomy 4, 7 of speaking of Israel, God said this, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him. I don't want anyone leaving this place thinking that there is such a thing as the distant God. There is the near God and he's closer than you imagine. Amen. Would you turn with me to Ezra chapter two, Ezra chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Uh, you can turn to page 389 there. I think that will get you to the beginning of Ezra. Ezra chapter two, verse one. This is one of those chapters, which I don't know if you can scan it real quick, but it sure looks boring. You look at it and it's just name after name after name after name. And you're certainly not going to do a devotion on that. So you'd probably go ahead and blow past it. Uh, I think we would miss a lot. So I'm going to make it very, very personal. Ezra chapter two, verse one. Here we go. Now, these who we're about to list were the people of the province who came up and out of the captivity of those exiles whom originally Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. Now, we all know the Persians are in charge now, but the Babylonians took them first. And these Jews returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Remember, let's make this personal. We're reading about their story. Realigning with God, getting back into his purposes. But I need you to know that God is whispering to you today about how you need to realign with his purposes and get back into his will. This is not information collection. This is transformation revelation. We all tracking? All right. Verse two. And when they launched out this first wave of many that will go back to Jerusalem or Israel, they came with a bunch of guys with weird names. They came with Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel is an important guy. We'll talk about him. They came with Yeshua. Yeshua is an important guy. We're going to talk about him. And then there's a guy named Nehemiah and you go, Oh, I know that guy. Nope. Not that guy. Same name. Wrong guy. Then there's Sariah and Realiah and Mordecai. You're like, Oh, I know that guy. Nope. Not that guy. Different guy. There's Bill Sean and Miss Parr and Big Fi and Rehum and Banah. But they're missing one. Well, how do we know that? As a matter of fact, we know exactly that we're missing a guy by the name of Nahamani. How do we know? Because Nehemiah, the other Nehemiah, wrote a book around a similar time as Ezra 
And he chronicles the same people list. His list has 12 names. Ezra has 11. Why? We're not sure. But here's why it's so important. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12. Do you think it's kind of important that there are 12 names listed out as the big dogs? Yes. 11. There weren't 11 tribes of Israel. There were 12. That's very, very important. I don't want to get off on a side tangent about everybody gets into these prophetic conferences. There's 10 lost tribes of Israel. and They are not lost. God knows exactly where they are. He's been tracking them since the beginning, and he knows how to track them all the way through time, right? So I'm not so sure about all that. But anyway, I want to tell you about two guys, because they're important for the whole rest of our story. Zerubbabel, super weird name, yeah? All right, so here's what we're going to do. This will be fun. Uh, Can you repeat after me, Zerubbabel? Yes, excellent. Okay, that's the last time you'll ever say it. Unless you want to mess with your kids in the car. Just say it all the way home. Keep going over and over and over and the kids just think you're like freaking out and stuff like that. It's fun. Anyway, we can call him Big Z. We can call him whatever, right? I mean, we can, we can call him anything, but he's super important because he is the political leader of the Jews. The Jews are in captivity, but they had a lot of freedom to have their own lives in Babylon and they still needed a big dog that would direct them and organize them. The government figure, that's Zerubbabel. He is the governor of Israel. But you also need the religious leader. The religious leader is a man by the name of Yeshua. Yeshua is the high priest at the time. He's the one that that, uh, is kind of the highest level priest guy so when he talks about what god wants everybody pays attention and you're familiar with his name probably because it's a super common name in scripture and it was a the name of our savior right so yeshua is joshua also known as jesus so jesus yeshua and joshua are all the same name one's greek one's hebrew stuff like that right So if you ever around people that maybe come from a a more of a prophetic stream or people that come from a more uh, rabbinic stream or charismatic stream, sometimes you'll hear them pray and they refer to Jesus as Yeshua Messiah. And you're like, Ooh, that sounds deep. It's just the other name for Jesus, right? So I don't, we don't need to make it super mysterious. Same name, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. If your name is Josh, your name is now Yeshua. And we will mess with you. (laughs) The number, back to the Bible, it says the number of the men of the people of Israel are such. And there's a little colon there and it starts listing name after name after name. And you go, really? Why do we care? Why are you writing down all these people? Sons of this, men from there. Why is this important? I'm going to give you real quick four reasons why this is super critical. For the Jewish people. Super critical. Anytime that you ever see a genealogy list, I want you to hear these four reasons rise up in your spirit. There are not only four reasons. These are the four most popular that every commentary mentions over and over and over. Number one, corporate identity. Number one, corporate identity. What do I mean? They believe themselves to be a family, a tribe, a nation, a people group. They see themselves in the collective. It is what modern day Americans don't see at all. 
that we have such a hard time. There are only niche areas, let's say maybe the military, let's say maybe a couple other groups where they began to see themselves of what we do as a nation. In general, for a long, long time, we have been driven into our minds. We are independent. We stand or die on our own. We make our own decisions. Nobody speaks for us. You talk to me if you want to know my heart. Don't ask anybody else. That independent spirit, some of it is great. As a matter of fact, I'm glad I live in a nation that says, Lance, you matter. You're valuable. Your voice is valuable. Because one of the unintended consequences of having only a corporate mindset in a nation is that people become disposable. If we're all one big collective, doesn't matter if anybody dies or goes away, we are still existing. I don't know if I want to live in that type of worldview. But we have an unintended consequence to being so independent. We don't see ourselves as a family. You see, the Middle Eastern mindset, even up to today, is far more connected to the corporate than we are. And what it means is that they celebrate together. What we have done in the past, what we are working on. I think that America could do a lot better if we ever felt like, what are we doing as a nation and how do we solve it as opposed to yelling at everybody else? It's your problem. It's your problem. How about it's our problem, right? And I think that if we had some type of corporate identity to say that when we as a nation succeed, that's good. And when we as a nation fail, that's bad for all of us, that the ecosystem echoes out. But to the Jews, they are a very tight-knit people group, and they think of themselves holistically. God would treat them as a group. Do you remember in the Old Testament when things went badly right after the Jericho War, and they ended up losing a war, and it all came down to one guy's sin? Do you remember this? His name was Achan. And God said, I'm punishing the entire nation because of that dude. Because what one of you does, all of you do. And he was teaching them to be a team. He was teaching them to be a family. You go, well, I didn't do that. Yeah, but he did. And he's on your family. So you did. Ah, so number one is corporate identity. Number two, inclusion in the chosen people. Inclusion in the chosen people. Bottom line, if you can't prove you're a Jew, you're not. That's craziness to us. But the way that it worked was that there were very specific rules about keeping things perfect and clean and orderly so that the blessings of the Jewish people would actually fall on the Jewish people, that God was creating a line around them. That's why I said you need to come out and be separate. You can't be like everybody else. We can't intermix with anybody because I'm trying to do a very specific work in you and I'm trying to create a drama. And the only way the drama is going to work and everyone's going to know my heart is if you are clean cut, cleared out. So we do not intermix. Now, there's obviously some consequences to that, right? But that was the heart of it. So there were blessings that come upon the Jewish people. And their society is so interlaced with their religion that if you're not a Jew, you don't get to be a part of it. Even today, if you want citizenship in Israel, you better prove that you are a real Jew. 
or you're not going to get citizenship. So even today, even though it's more lax than it was before, laws are pretty tight. Number three, land inheritance. Land inheritance. If you look on a map, you'll notice a couple things about the Middle East. Number one, Israel's really small, right? If you look at them on a map, they got water on their left and a bunch of other nations that are all bigger than them on the right. They're this little tiny place. And all of their land, all of their promised land is divvied out a long time ago. There is no more land. It's called landlocked. They can't expand. There's not going to be more promised land. There just is what it is. And back in the day, when they took the promised land, God said, the tri- these tribes get this land. These clans get this land. And they divvied it out into families. So individual family lines owned plots of land. You're never going to get any more because you're taking someone else's. But if you can't prove that's your family, you don't get the land. And if you don't have any land, you don't feel like your promise is right. Why do they write this stuff down? It's really important. Okay, last one. Priests and Levites. Priests and Levites. If you can't prove that you are a priestly line or a Levite line, you have no job or identity. Why? Because the tribe of Levi was given a very special job. Their job was to be priest helpers. Only one line in that actually are the priests. Everybody else is priest helpers. But they can go where other people can't go. They can go into the temple. They can go before God. They can handle the holy instruments. They can... uh, pray on behalf of people. They are called out to do the worship of his name. They have all these special things. In addition to that, the way they make their living is off the tithe of the land. They weren't supposed to be farmers. They weren't supposed to be herdsmen. They were supposed to be the religious leaders of their day. So they had a religious job, were paid by the nation, and the priests would get extra special offerings from God through the people. If you can't prove it, you get none of that. And you have no identity. Because you're not, your family's not shepherds. Your family's not herdsmen. You got no skills there. So if you can't prove what you do, you don't do it. Now, y'all see why it's important to have lists? Okay, so Jews are absolutely obsessed with lineage and genealogy. It's one of the reasons why when there is a big attack and there was a destruction of a lot of their records, they went ballistic because you have to have records. All right, let's keep moving forward. When we read stuff like this, genealogies, some of us chafe because we we look at it and we go, ooh, that feels yucky. This whole thing about, oh, you, you are from this line and you're from this line. Why does it bother us? Because some of us have seen in history how it's been abused and it talks about lines of privilege and lines of oppression. That people would say, well, I'm from so-and-so, so you need to bow down to me because my family line is better than your family line. And to us, I think that most of us in this room, that would turn our stomach. We're like, ew, I don't care where you came from. Who are you? 
And why would you tell me what to do? Why do you think that your family line is better than my family line? We stand or fall on our own merits. Why would you? Do you understand why some of us get a little agitated? Where we start reading this and going, I don't, I don't want God to judge me based on what my family did, right? But here's what we would miss. I think that there is a beauty and I would like to redeem family line conversation for Bridgeway. Here's some fun stuff that if you did go back and learn about your family lineage, you might be blessed because I'll tell you this. I don't know where I come from. I'm a mutt. Right? There's a bunch of y'all that are mutts, right? Maybe we should all collectively gather together in a mutt group. But anyway, I don't know where I come from. I got a couple things. I know that the biggest pieces of me are German and Hungarian, right? German and Hungarian. So these are the, the biggest chunks, but I don't know about all the rest of it. It's just a bunch of European craziness, I guess. Anyway, I have never talked about, you know, my lineage. It's never been a big deal. But sometimes when you dig in, you find some incredible moves of God. I want to give you an example. There's a gentleman that works here at Bridgeway. His name is Lucian Hughes. Lucian Hughes. He works in our media department. And he does a lot of our audio stuff and, and video kind of interaction stuff. Now, Lucian, um, on his paternal grandmother's side, his family is very into genealogies. And they can track documented Christians since 1655. First documented Christian was eight times great-grandfather ago. Eight times great-grandfather ago. Francis Stout was born in Barbados in 1655, most likely to Scottish immigrants. The family stayed in Barbados for the next six generations. Then Lucian's grandfather came into play. His name is Percival Parkinson Stout. Yeah, that's a good name. Anybody remember where the sidewalk ends? Percival Parkinson Stout would not take the garbage out. Right? You remember this? All right. If anybody doesn't know that, you're not a hippie. What is wrong with you? All right. Anyway. Uh, Percival Parkinson Stout. Percy and two of his older brothers immigrated through Ellis Island in 1909. In 1910, they're living in Spokane, Washington, pursuing Christian education. Percy then served as a pastor at churches in California, Texas, Washington, before settling in Portland and pastoring the Baptist church where Lucian's father grew up. He said, my dad, Glenn, was born in 1949, accepted Christ at five. My grandmother used to tell a story about finding him as a little boy in the kitchen with a knife about to cut open his chest. After a swift paddling, she asked him, what were you thinking? And he said, sorry, mama, I was only trying to let Jesus into my heart. <laughs> Scary, cute. In 1655, Francis Stout had no idea that eight times great-grandson would be working in a church serving the Lord, carrying on the legacy of an unbroken chain of Christians. No idea. Sometimes we need to see the big picture of what God's doing that's beyond us. The fact that you are a Christian today, what are you launching as a legacy? Because he didn't know. Fleeing from Scotland, just trying to keep your life alive. 
not dreaming that God would hold your family near Him for generation after generation. The decisions you make today have impact into the future. What this list also meant to the original leaders was a list of heroes. Once again, what happens to the Jewish people happens to all of them. And so when little kids are supposed to read this list, they were supposed to look back and go, wow, those are our heroes. Here's a bunch of people that were in captivity and they decided to take a risk. 42,000 of them decided to take a risk to take a four-month journey over 900 miles to go to a land they've never been to to build a spot for me. To them, they're heroes. 42,360 people. Yet what's ironic is there's 112 names on this list. We could go through them. There's the sons of Aden. There's the sons of Gabar. There is the Chephira and Biroth. Do you know any of these people? Nope. Who does? God. And he knows them by name. 112 of them. Did we need to mention them all? I don't know. God did. And he calls them out by name. No one else knows you. I know you. No one else knows what you mean. I know what you mean. No one else knows what you do. I know what you do. And he knows it so closely, right? You'll notice in verse 3, it says the sons of, and then later on in 22, the men of. It just keeps talking about where they're from, the families they're from, and the legacy. If you go to verse 36, it talks about the priests of, in verse 40, the Levites from. There's one thing I want to mention about the Levites and the priests. Do you see how many Levites there are in verse 40? There's 74. That's not a lot. 74 for 42,000 people? That's insane. But what's intriguing is the number of priests. The number of priests is 4,363. So there's 4,300 priests and there's 43,000 people. I'm not great with math. What is that percentage? 10%. Is that important? course it is the tithe of the land god organized through all these families through the captivity through everything else they could not have done it themselves and yet god was orchestrating out that one tenth of the nation returning would be people devoted to him specifically god is so good with the big and the complicated you can't imagine how he's going to orchestrate your life to where he's going to get you It's so easy for him. Verse 41, it says there were singers. They were the sons of Asaph. There were 128 of them. Do these guys matter? Yep. Who's Asaph? Super cool guy. He was probably David's number one worship leader, King David. Asaph, if you look in Psalms, sometimes you're reading and assuming that David wrote all the Psalms and the songs. He actually didn't. Asaph wrote some of them. He was the one that would lead the Levitical only male singers. Because at that time, remember the whole priesthood, all the Levites, it was all about the men. They were the singers that would call out before God. They had call and response things. They were constantly lifting up the name of God. These Levite singers, there were 128 of them. 
because they were so important. Then you'll notice in verse 42, the sons of the gatekeepers. Who are they? They're like the admin controllers determining who can go where and what holy places are covered where. They're the ones that are working on all the orchestration. Then in verse 43, there's temple servants. Who are they? They're the behind the scenes grunt workers. And notice everybody is named. It's incredible. God cares about what part you play in all the things. Well, I don't know if my part's important in church. God knows your name and he knows your role. And he knows what he's doing with you. And he knows that if he pulls you out, the dam breaks. You're that important. Verse 59, the following were those who came up out of five Babylonian cities. Notice this. Though they could not prove their father's houses, they could not prove their descent, whether they belonged to Israel at all. Verse 60, the sons of these three people were 652. 61. Also of the sons of the priests of these three family groups, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as disqualified, unclean. The governor told them that they were not to do priest stuff. They were not to partake of the most holy food until there could be a priest to consult the Urim and Thummim. Let me just explain one thing real quick. Disqualified. Are these lists important? Yep. Some people didn't have their paperwork and you're out. You can come hang out with us, but you're not getting any blessing. Why would God do that? That sounds kind of rude. God, can't you just find their paperwork? That'd be great. What was God doing? He was saying, listen, this stuff is important. You don't just take everything I'm doing with you lightly. We don't lose paperwork. Because I'm trying to build something through you and you seem to think that it's an afterthought. It's not an afterthought. My purposes in your life are number one priority. And then the governor said, well, once we get a high priest in here, when Yeshua is already locked and loaded and tracking, that he can consult the Urim and the Thummim. What is that? Well, we have no pictures of it. We have no clear description, only oral tradition. But check this out. It's super weird and it defies everything that we think today. The high priest would wear a super cool robe that had gems on it and everything. It had an inner pocket. In that inner pocket, he would have what most scholars believe was two stones. They were uh, smooth stones. One was white, one was black. They were identical in every other way. Inside his robe, he would consult God, mix them up and draw one out. And it would be yes, the other would be no. And that's how they made their decisions on important matters. So they would say, Lord, are we to go to war? Yes or no. And the priest would draw out a stone. And that was God's word. Man, is that not trippy? That's scary, right? You're like, what? That's like the magic eight ball. You're all shaking it. Not now. Dang it. Shake it again. The reason why I pointed out is this. They believe that God ran their nation. So they left the biggest decisions to God alone. And they believe that he not only had the outcome, he had the process in his hand. And they were okay with flipping a coin. That God would handle every flip. God has spoken. That type of respect is almost unheard of today.
Let's give credit where credit is due. Check it out in verse 64 as we wrap it up. The whole assembly was 42,360 people. Well, besides their male and female servants, of which there was 7,337. Hold up. I thought you guys were captive. And you have over 7,000 servants serving you? Wait, while you're in time out, God is blessing you with servants. That's crazy. I thought you were in trouble. Here's the funny thing. God's grace is so big that he still blesses us even when we're in trouble. Are we all clear on one thing? And that is everything you have is from God. Everything you have is grace. Okay. And they had 200 male and female singers. What? I thought we already counted the singer guys. Different group. This group doesn't do the Levitical singing. They do the civic singing. Funerals, weddings, special times. Singing and music is very important to the Jewish people. And so they counted them and said, God will be glorified. We've got singers. If you are blessed with a voice from the Lord, please count that as a blessing. It's pretty awesome. And then it says, oh, and they're horses. Wait, really? We're counting horses? Yeah. For wealthy riders, there were 736. Mules for less wealthier women riders were 245. Their pack animal camels were 435. Their donkeys were 6,720. Do we care about that? Mm. You do if you believe that everything in your pocket is from God. And you want to be gracious about it. You want to have gratitude. You want to be thankful. You're going to write everything down. Because I think that there's still in our minds, we think we owned it all and we earned it all. And so we don't even bother giving God glory for the small stuff. All good gifts come from the Father of lights. Verse 68, as we close, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God. That's the temple to erect it on its site and according to their ability. If they had it, great. If they didn't have it, okay. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. God first. God first. And they put their money into his resources. All right. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Here's what I want to do as we close. I want to pray over you. When it comes to my daughters, Jill, who's 16, Andy, who's 13, I know what makes them laugh. I know what Jill thinks is funny versus what Andy thinks is funny. I know what Jill's dream vacation is. I know what Andy's dream vacation is. I know what builds up Jill's heart and what builds up Andy's heart. Why? Well, partly because I'm an involved father and partly because my wife tells me. <laughs> Nevertheless. Now, I know my girls. I know my girls. And what that means is that parents know the difference between their kids. And the reason why I'm telling you this is your heavenly father knows how you're different from the person sitting next to you. 
And what I'm going to pray is that he ministers in a very individual way. I know I've talked about the power of corporate identity, and we do. We need to move as a family. We need to operate as a family. We need to care about each other like a family. But for a moment, I'm going to feed into that independent spirit again and say, may everyone else disappear and you just have connection with your dad. So let's pray, yeah? Heavenly Father, I have your kids with me. You gather them all together and you told them to come. And in this moment, my biggest desire, Lord, is that they would feel that you're personal. We don't go off everything about feelings, but it's really hard to build a relationship without them. So I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would descend down on this campus. Rise up within the hearts of the people. Walk the aisles among us. Reach the volunteers in the lobby. Pour down through all the children. And one by one, begin to minister to them individually. And it's not that you're not doing it already. It's that we don't seem to have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the spirit sensitive enough to know you're there. So I would just begin to pray that as you're sweeping this place, you begin to talk to each of them individually. The one who is worried about carpool scenarios. The one that is worried about retirement. The one that is so angry because they've been spurned at work. The one that just wants more friends. The one whose back hurts and the one whose hip hurts. The one who wonders if you're real. But God, we could go through and talk about all your kids. But right now, as you shower down your voice, would you just individually take them aside and say, my daughter, I know you. I love you, and I have a word for you. My son, I see you. I understand you when no one else does. So God, in this beautiful atmosphere that is rich with your glory, would you begin to minister all the way across, from side to side and front to back, Begin to heal and touch them, Holy Spirit, that they would know that you are near. Give them ideas and dreams and fun stuff about visions of, oh, I could do this and this would be awesome and flood their hearts and minds. Let them know that you're their dad. We love you, God. We pray that this altar is anointed, that they would continue on this prayer team to carry out your ministry. That if there were any that you stirred up and said, I've got more for you, that they would come to the altar to receive. And that each and every prayer member would be anointed to continue that conversation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time or tonight.